Hello there, my friends, and welcome back to another exciting episode, rather, a two-part series episode, episodes, about a patient. This is Matthew Zachary, and I shall note that these two episodes were made possible by our friends at GSK. So I had the privilege of going to Chicago a couple of weeks ago to attend ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology. It's kind of the, um, the Comic-Con mecca of everything cancer globally. As you know, forty to fifty thousand people descend upon McCormick Place to convene, research, advocacy, policy, nonprofits, academia, health systems, insurers, pharma companies, life science companies—they're all there to talk about the latest and greatest going on in the world to hopefully make cancer suck a little less for everyone. So while I was there on site, I had the chance to interview two people right there in Chicago at ASCO to get their take, their stories, and talk about what it means to be an advocate, where research is going, and what people can expect, that's you, the listener, people can expect going forward because of this incredible conference. My guest for this episode is Dr. Tanya Small, a returning champion to adaptations. She is a pediatric oncologist by trade who crossed over to drug development so she could scale the medicines that could help more children than she ever could in practice. We had a great conversation about the past, the present, the future of oncology and the impact this year's conference will have on millions of patients worldwide. Enjoy the show. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Welcome back to Out of Patients. We are on site this time, on location, on set in... uh, Fabulous Windy City. Yes, ASCO 2023. It is ASCO. It's my first ASCO since 2018. Did you do the virtuals or this is your this, no, 37th? I, I don't know. Well, being that I'm only 37. <laughs> plus, 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 plus. For the what time? <laughs> um, no, but yeah, I've been in, oh my gosh, over the last probably 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I did come to ASCO last year, but I mean, virtual, live, I'm here. This is one of my favorite congresses. But 30,000 people from around the world show up. I mean, that shows you how much, I mean, the importance of the data gets released. And I mean, we're excited because I think we had 33 abstracts accepted from GSK alone in oncology. So there's just a lot of new information, innovative information so just as precedent, listeners, uh, Tanya was on my show a while ago. So I put a link in the uh, the show notes to that episode. And then I rebroadcast that episode because it was a top 10 for the year. Woo! So this is like your third time on the show, even though the second was the first repeated. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to just give a one-on-one about you because I, I tell your story all the time, how this extraordinarily heartfelt, empathetic pediatric oncologist said, I need to help more children at scale. Not that I'm of no use right now, but if I can help 10 kids a year at this center, but I could help 500 kids at scale by getting into the industry. And you did just that. Still trying to do just that. Well, I'm your publicist. How'd I do? You did really good. I'm taking you everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So 
I mean, again, like this is the uh, sort of a mecca of oncology every single year. And people come for the abstracts and the latest research and the mic drop moments of when you're this close to approvals and things go from, you know, I'm jargoning like third line to second line to first line. And I know just enough to be dangerous. Good job. And then I play armchair idiot when you respond to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you're right. This is where people come to do that, to learn the newest data, but also to engage with each other. I mean, I see colleagues that I haven't seen in decades here and share ideas. So it's, you have innovative ideas. There are times where I remember once we drew an idea on a napkin here at ASCO. So I think, I think it's all of the above seeing what's coming out, learning about new innovative, just even molecules, seeing the new data and then sharing ideas and all of us really trying to drive impact for patients. And they've done an extraordinary job representing the voice of the patient. Yes. yes. Because they actually spent time to make it look good and put it front and center, center yes. in the exhibit hall. But I think that also shows the evolution of medicine where it was always about just the science and the data and imposing a lot of it on the patient, where now I think things have changed, where, as you like to talk about, the patient, the cust- this is the customer. And so the patient is now front and center. The reason why we're doing it is front and center, even abstracts being presented about from patient advocates. And so I think we're seeing a huge shift in, in, in medicine. Well, also, uh, there's been, this is just my anthropology hat, a lot of nonprofit executives have gone into the life science industry yes. with that lived experience career-wise, yes. not people like me who had it and then did it. And it does bring an informed understanding of how infrastructurally that can better top down. Your, your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You and have I, thoughts? I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does. And I think I think... I mean, I don't know if we're going to get this, get into detail more about this, but this is the whole concept of even what we, we, we call patient-driven science, where to your point, you have patient advocates coming in and helping to drive the science, the patients driving the science. We even have something, for example, called Protocol Design Lab at GSK, where the patients, patient advocates sit and help design protocols for our studies because we know it's about the patient again. So I do think there's a big shift, and, and I, I think it's for the best for patients. Right. When you took the role here, you thought it was just one hat. Ha 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 ha. Talk about job. your many hats. So right now I am the I, I actually got hired um at GSK to help rebuild the medical oncology program. And I am the global medical oncology head. Um I also am the chair for um R and D diversity, equity, inclusion, which is really exciting. And then other stuff. So again, <laughs> just talking to patients and caregivers your entire career has you've been informed by that, and especially yes. in that that specific community, those are parents. Yes. And something that I remember fighting for in the early days was it isn't just about me; it's about my mom and dad and yes. my brother. And I just I'm hearing caregiving or the british say carers right i'm getting used to carers carers which is what they say in europe caregiving or caregivers are carers <laughs> but this just again there's more holistic appreciation for you know our jargon of patient journey patient experience is really more about how you know a determinant to be you have a spouse you have a son what yeah. is best for you is a 
is finally a question getting asked. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, I think my, so coming from academia into pharma, I think there's one thing that I, that I have is just clarity of purpose, right? And it's, it's, and it's, it's clarity, not just of purpose, but I'm clear what I need to do to help deliver um, innovative medicines and deliver it to patients. And to your point, one of the things you realize, especially as a pediatric oncologist, is not just the person that has been diagnosed with the disease. It's, it's the surround sound, it's their families, it's, it's everything. It is, it's the totality of people surrounding this person and how it impacts everyone. And so when you when you start creating medicines, when you, when you when you deliver medicines, you have to think about it all. We talk about the treatment team. We talk about the healthcare ecosystem. We talk about, to your point, the carers, the caregivers. We we think about it all because so many people are are affected, impacted, and want to help and be a part of the solution. Like no one <laughs> asks to be in this store. Yes. When you enter yes. the healthcare target, not a sponsor. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and. There's really no greeter. We talk about navigation and, you know, we talk about determinants. But for me, Google shouldn't be something you rely on to find what you need. And now we're in a place of a little more ethical responsibility, not just to make sure you're told, here are your options, but what option would you like instead of here's the option you're getting? I see where you're going with this. So to your point, first of all, nobody wakes up and says, I want to be a patient, to your point. And then when that news hits, trying to even understand emotionally, psychologically, economically, just all the realities that a person has to go through. And then you say, well, then this is your diagnosis and let's talk about treatment. And that's a lot to unpack. And, And the way, and I think we're moving more into a system where we want the patient to be able to be in that driver's seat to make the best decision for him or herself. And that to me is one of the most important things that we can do. And how do you do that is, is first of all, as you're developing, changing the dynamic and saying, we're not just a product centered um, company. It's much more of a patient centered. And what do I mean by that? We are understanding that end to end for that lack of a better word, patient journey and seeing how we can work together to create the support system, to create the tools, to create the education and the right medicines throughout that time so that the patient can say, these are my options. Now let me choose what's best for me because some patients don't want chemo and that is okay. Some patients may have a different goal and that is okay, but it's really important to make sure that we have the right tools, the right education and the right support so that that patient has the right information or equipped with the right information to write, to make the right decision for him or herself. Well, that's that's well-spoken. And again, the perspective I, I will add to that is, you know, we're moving in a sort of a culturally anthropologic shift in this country where mm-hmm. the boomers are now on Medicare. Yes. The Gen Xers are becoming in their 50s, which is terrifying. Hi there, have you met me? Right? <laughs> and we are definitely a more generationally adept, you know, uh, mindset that is a little more contrapuntal and, counter, and, and counterintuitive to groupthink. We're questioning, we're aware of the internet. Even though we were raised without the internet, yes. we're now aware of using it the right way because we grew up with it. Yeah. How do you feel that's affecting the days when people showed up with like 10 pages of Google printouts? I still think people show up with. Do they still pages. show up with Google printouts? 
(laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, the thing is that people are getting a lot of information from a lot of places and being bombarded. And, and, and I have a few fears. I have a few fears in terms of people are getting answers to questions without perspective without the right counseling. And so it gets more and more scary. So when you Google things, it may lead you to a whole different path than what then you would be on if, if you spoke to a physician and you actually got that right counseling. So I still think a lot of that is happening. People are asking, I mean, I, even yesterday, somebody saw their child's white blood count and it was slightly elevated. I got a call. Do you think my child has lymphoma? Well, why did you ask me that question? Because I Googled and they said, you know, yeah. so, so I think that, I think that right now people are getting information directly, which is great. But if you don't get it with the right counsel, with the right education, it still becomes a very scary place. And I, I am still seeing that. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dr. Tanya Small. We're back. I want, I want to mm-hmm. tee out from your comment before, which is most of these websites where people hope to find information might as well be called you have cancer no matter what.com. There has to be to me a closer relationship between the healthcare provider and the person diagnosed with whatever disease this person is diagnosed with, because it can get scary and people start reacting um, without the right level of information. So so to me, it's much more of leveraging all the services around us. How do we make sure that the patient advocates have a role to play in this and patient navigators? And how do we make sure physicians are working closely with them? How do we make sure we're proactively having those conversations? And the fear that to me it's creating or the misinformation, people are not being diagnosed early enough. People are not getting the right medicines early enough because of that. But then there are people who are like, I just want to stay in my community center I don't want to know what's going on with me. I'm going to hide this from people. So let's talk about those people in their community. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. In general, particularly clinical trials and and the reach has been heavy in the academic centers where a lot of your patients actually live in the community. So there has been recently a shift in reaching out more into the community, working with community resources, whether it's community people in the churches, people in the hair salon, barbers or whatever, making sure that we're partnering with the community so that the education is more readily available and creating a platform where people feel safe speaking about what's happening because by not addressing it, it does not go away. But how do we create a different mindset? And to me, it's not just working in academic institutions. It is really partnering with the communities. And so the big push in terms of increasing and improving diversity in clinical trials has forced us, which I'm happy about, has forced us to go into the community and partner and think about ways in which we can partner with the communities. But that's a great segue to empathy and trust, which I think Mm -hmm. we talked about enduringly every time we go out. And who is the arbiter of Mm -hmm. access is a different way to think about it. Because just because it is there for you, is it right for you? I would say most people are trying to find the connection. They're trying to find people who they can speak to. They're trying to find people who they can 
be themselves and just ask those real questions and get an answer that they understand so that they can make the right decisions for themselves. And, and, and it's very important for all of us to understand that patients are not homogeneous right? There's people have their own needs. They have their own drivers. They have their own experiences. They have their own direction and they're entitled to have that. So how can they have the support that they need so they can get the outcome that they want? And I think for the most part, most of us usually impose our own desired outcomes on patients. And that has been the challenge. So that made patients also not trust to have those conversations. So, so when you switch in and say, again, the patient is the consumer of, of, of this. The patient has a right to determine their own direction when it comes to their own health care. If you start with that premise, then you should be able to have those conversations. Then the next piece is, how do we make sure we're in those communities so that we can have those right conversations and invest in the communities, invest in the medical infrastructures in the community so that they have the right access Right. And, but there's dual accountability. If our mm-hmm. expectation is to kind of give a warmer hug to people that don't want to be there, but they can't get to a trial that they may qualify for, that's a whole other conversation, maybe a whole other podcast. But are you seeing trends? I mean, we use decentralized, right? Like, let's get it to you. This is kind of like not a question that can be answered fairly easily. Oh, this is a question that I enjoy talking about. But that's my point is like, even if you, let's say some magic wand happens and everyone becomes receptive and like, sign me up, let me see if I qualify. I can't drive 60 miles to this place. Talk about that. Yeah. So, so let's start with this whole premise that, or debunk the premise that people don't want to go on clinical trials. Let's start there. I mean, the research ASCO actually um, released some data last year, which showed that when you ask actually um, people of African descent, breast cancer patients, how many of you would have been on, wanted to be on a clinical trial? And about 80% of them raised their hand. How many of you were offered? Only about 40% raised their hand, which showed that a lot of people are not being offered. And that data goes on and on and on. So, So let's even start with the premise that people would want to be on a clinical trial if it was available to them. And then there's so many barriers that stops them from, from, from getting on trials. And, and in my head, I, you know, I kind of lump them in different biases. One is even our trial designs, for the most part, tended to exclude a lot of people who were in the communities, a lot of people of color, a lot of people who are low socioeconomic status. They couldn't get on some of the eligibility criteria completely excluded them. The baselines in which we measure were usually based on older white males. And so a lot of people didn't qualify. If you look at consent forms, it's not in a language that people can actually understand. And then you look at inherent biases. Physicians are humans and everyone has their own implicit biases. So we learned that a lot of times they weren't even being offered the trial. And so how do you now correct that behavior? And then the last piece is to your point, if you think about 80% of the patients being in the community, yet 80% of the studies were in academic centers, how do they get there just logistically from transportations to their daily work? Again, no one plans to be diagnosed. So they're working and they have their daily routine. How do we support that? And so there is a lot of initiatives happening now to actually bring the trials to them. And you talk about decentralization. That model for the most part, is starting to work. But to your point, you also need to make sure that there is someone there in the community that you can actually have that day-to-day conversation with. So a lot of it is just as we invested heavily in academic centers, and this is my personal belief, just as we invested heavily in academic centers for them to create the right infrastructure, 
to run these trials, we need to now invest in the community of skilling physicians in the community, investing in a sustainable solution so that patients can actually go to their local physicians that they trust, that they know, and get the right services. So I'm going to future cast. Yes. And say that the next great pharma jargon is going to be patient community upskilling. Hmm. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> patient upskilling, though? Or pa- is it... Well, patient physicians? upskilling uh-huh. is the trust. Yes. Clinical upskilling is getting it there. Okay. And community upskilling is infrastructure. Okay. I'm going to own that. <laughs> I think you should trademark my it. Intellectual property, folks. I said it here first. Com- patient. Patient. Community. Community. Upskilling. And... Yeah, I don't know what I said. <laughs> we should See? backtrack the show. No, it's definitely patient and community, but upskilling. it's medical. No, and I understand what you're trying to say, but it, not only that, to me, it because the upskilling and the building of the infrastructure and the investment yeah. of the infrastructure right, is Because that be hospital doesn't have, like, Wi-Fi. Right. right? Nothing's going to matter, right? Right. And then not only that, to run a clinical trial takes a lot. Yes. And... And to get clean data so that we can get the drug approved. Because in the end, the whole reason is to get a drug approved so that patients can get access to this novel treatment. Right. And the study allows us to understand what are the safety signals, how do, how do the drugs work with the patient's biology so that we can get the right drug to this patient. So it takes a lot to do that. So how do we invest in the communities so that they can have the right infrastructure that's sustainable? Because my other fear is, you throw money and then you walk away and that's not sustainable. So how do you create a sustainable approach so that that upskilling, as you like to yeah. call, um, continues on? Right. So what we're trying to say is part of a determinant of whether you live or die is how many miles there are between you and your hospital. Yeah. So and we, how do we shrink that? How do we shrink that? Yeah. I yeah. think, and quite frankly, I'm go with wormholes. Imagine. I know. But no, but I think that's a practical solution and and we're seeing it happen. We're doing it. And I think we need to do it more. And I think we need to upskill the physicians that the patients are already going to. They should not have to leave their physician to go to another one. How do we make sure that physician is equipped with that information and actually able to be a part of those clinical trials too? But they're also allowed to fire their physician if they're not happy with that physician. Well, I mean, again, the patient is the ultimate consumer. Yes. The person diagnosed with the disease should be able to determine who's the right physician. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So rounding all of this, that coming full circle, you know, I'm, I'm what people call a Bill Clinton cancer patient. Because it's like the 90s, right? Uh, he didn't cause it. He just was my president when I was diagnosed. And, you know, back then you just kind of died, right? No one really focused on who you were as a person. It's just like get you the seven medicines that existed at the time. And then, you know, walk it off was my therapy. Yeah, and yeah. I was done. And then finally we moved towards maybe these people could live a little better. And now it's like we should really care about how long they live. And now it's... Let's make sure that their life is as minimally interrupted as possible. Yes. And yes. I will attest, as I've done many, many times, it might have taken 20 years, but finally, it is now recognized that the patient should be considered the end user, not the prescriber. <laughs> and what you're doing, and again, enough pharma companies have caught on to this trend and are adapting their corporate culture to it. And you guys are doing it great. I think, I mean... Again, we call it patient-driven science. And 
And I agree. I mean, I think about think about 20 years ago, the, the biggest thing was, first of all, can we keep you alive, yeah. right? And and can we keep you alive? And we will throw all everything we have at you to keep you alive. And patients got sick and they weren't able to continue what they were doing. I mean, in the cost of medicine, they were losing their house. Like, but it was, can we keep you alive? And over decades, I'm starting, I mean, you see patients living longer. And then the next question to your point started, how can we make your life better while you're on this? And then can we make sure that you're thriving? And we're paying close attention to it. And I, I don't remember if I spoke about this last time, but when you looked at things like diarrhea, when you looked at vomiting, initially it was just a grade. Now we know that protracted nausea, protracted diarrhea is not okay. If you can't get out of bed or if you can't leave your house during a treatment, that is not okay. You are not living the life that you need to live. So we're paying really close attention to. So we talk about the experience as well as the outcome because it's that entire end-to-end experience plus outcome. Right. By the way, it's not a Michelin five-star rated episode of Adaptations without the word diarrhea. Oh. So thank you for dropping that. I had to. <laughs> By the way, I'm taking notes that you mentioned physicians are humans. I was not yes. aware of that. Oh, no. Yeah. See, that's why I have to keep reminding people. We are humans. Yes. First, I think just so everyone understands, we are all here to see the same thing and to really work together to improve the outcomes, to bring innovative medicine so that people diagnosed with whatever disease, whatever kind of cancer, not just live longer, but has the ultimate experience doing it. And, and in the end, making sure that they thrive. Um, medicine is a service. We are servants to our patients. And so what you need, what you want matters to us the most. We are the ones to create the medicines to serve you. And so in order to make that happen, we need to hear from you. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear what matters. And we want to partner with you and your healthcare physician. It is not just one person doing it all. And I want to make sure all of your listeners know this is a team approach. We are all here, part of your treatment team, to see the optimal outcome for you. So raise your voices, get into that driver's seat, and understand that we will equip you or help enable you as much as we can, just let us know what that need is. Ask the physician, pick up a phone. This is your health. This is your life. And we want you to own it. We want we want you to be in charge of it. All right. I'm going to outro you by you reading your own job description because I don't remember how many hats you wear. You said it before. <laughs> Dr. Tanya Small. Hi, I am the Global Medical Oncology Head at GSK, as well as the Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for R&D. Welcome back to Adapt Patients. Thank you for coming back to Adapt Patients. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll Thank see you, you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully I get to see you again. You will. If you see me now, you'll see me again. Bye, everyone. Bye. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an off-script health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and off-script health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.